say this verse with me if you can. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's try that one more time. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope has two parts to its definition. Hope in the first part means there is a wish, there is a desire. The second part means that there is an expectation. There is an anticipation that what I've been hoping for, what's been a dream in my spirit, is one day going to happen. One day, one day, one day. That is the word for hope that is used to describe God. Now may the God of hope fill you with that kind of his kind of hope. What is it? It's the kind of hope that has a wish, has a desire, unique to you. It's not a universal one-size-fits-all. Now may the God of hope plant within you a particular, specific, or series of wishes or desires that carry with it. One way you'll know it's God is because there is an expectation, there's an anticipation that it's it's not just a thought, it's not just a dream, but it's something that's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And it can seem like when it's one of those kinds of hopes that God plants inside of us, it can seem as if even when everything seems to be moving it in the opposite direction, where it seems like the total reverse of what you were hoping for and anticipating is coming into being or is materializing, you still, you still have that feeling inside of you anyway. You still have that sense of anticipation that it's coming. It doesn't matter how dark the skies get. It doesn't matter how impossible it looks. Somehow, some way, there is still that dream. There is still that hope or that wish. Now may the God of hope fill you up with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound, you may overflow, you may exude, you may effervesce hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, for the last two or three weeks, we've been talking about a, a slice or two off of that category, a page of that, in that category, the topic called hope, that kind of hope. A couple of weeks ago, we, we made mention of this statement. There is always still hope, no matter what, because of the mercy of God. Just because I blow it, doesn't mean that what God wants to do with my life can't happen now because I blew it. He is the God of mercy. That means his heart is to give toward us, given our direction, the things that we don't naturally deserve, that we haven't earned, that he has the ability to have pity for us, have pity on us. And that word mercy means not only that God has the ability to feel what we feel and to sense what we sense and to be hurt or affected by the things that affect us, but it also carries with it an active ingredient, a change agent, that it's not just that the Lord knows how to pity us or feel with us or even feel sorry for us. He has the ability and has the heart to step right down into the middle of whatever it is that is breaking our hearts or has broken our hearts or wounded us. He has the ability to get right down there in the middle of that with us and fix it and heal it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bartimaeus, when he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was a blind beggar. He could do nothing but beg because he couldn't see. 
And when he was saying, Lord, have mercy on me, he wasn't saying at all. This was not a part of it. This wouldn't have helped him just to be saying, oh, Jesus, would you please feel sorry for me? Jesus, would you please pity me in my situation? I'm in a miserable condition here because I can't see. And it would just mean a lot to me if you would just, if I'd just know that you felt sorry for me. That was not what he was saying. When he used that, that verb, uh, when he was cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It was a verb and not an adverb. It was meaning Jesus, mercy me. Do something for me. If you, in, in, in a sense, if you feel sorry for me, help me. If you, if you feel what I'm going through, if you pity me, then help me. There's always hope, folks, as long as there is the mercy of God. Even though we haven't earned it, even though we haven't done anything to, to, to back God into a corner, which is impossible to think that way anyway, for him to do something nice to us. If we just realize that it is his heart to pity the circumstances and the consequences that sin bring upon a life. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Folks, I'm going to tell you that that is a prayer that you need to memorize, you need to learn, you need to own as your own. Because there are going to be sometimes, even as we go on in our walk with the Lord, when we will find ourselves in a, in a place of, of where we've just missed it, where we just maybe got tired and we just decided to go off our own way, and then we realize while we're off out over here that, that we, we've missed the Lord. And we can't be coming back to him as if to say, God, I've done this right and this right and this right. Therefore, on the basis of that, you owe me something. Most of the time for us, it's the other way, isn't it? That, Lord, I'm, I've left you. I walked away from you. I forgot about you. I, I, I lost my focus. Whatever it is, I'm out here. And it's the cry of Bartimaeus all over again. And it doesn't matter how long you've known Jesus. It doesn't matter how many verses of Scripture you can sing. It doesn't matter how many spiritual gifts you have. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you, you would know from memory. Still that prayer, Jesus, Son of David, mercy me. Have mercy upon me is a prayer that fits us. And we have permission to pray it. We have permission to use it. And I want to encourage you to do that. So there's always hope as long as there is the mercy of God. The second thing we mentioned is there's always hope no matter what because of the might of God, because of the power of God. It doesn't matter if you don't have any resources. It doesn't matter if the battle is arrayed against you. It doesn't matter if all the forces of however you would measure uh, might and authority and, and, and power and strength, when all of that is arrayed against you, it doesn't matter those circumstances as long as there is the might of God available to the people of God. He's powerful, and he doesn't, he doesn't need anybody else to help him in his power. He doesn't have to be voted in. He doesn't have to be a part of a signed treaty in order for him to enter. Whenever he chooses to do what he chooses to do for those whom he chooses to do it for, he can do it. He's able to do it. And I'm going to say, there are, there are folks in this room and folks who are listening and watching this morning who could stand up and say, Pastor, that's the truth. When I didn't think, I didn't think I had a friend in this world when I didn't think that there was any means of rescuing me from that situation, when it was as if there was no hope, God helped me. It wasn't, it wasn't just luck. It wasn't just a circumstance or a consequence or a happenstance. There's no excuse for what happened, no reason, than that God rolled up his sleeve knew my name, knew what I was in the middle of, and he stepped in to rescue me, to help me. Now, folks, when that happens to you just one time, you've got something in your memory bank that can alter the rest of your life because you know if you ever backed into a corner, you're not really in a corner. God can just kick the corners out of the corner. 
if just because there's a roof over your head, that doesn't mean that nothing can get in. He can just blow a hole in the roof. If it's something that doesn't exist that you, to your way of knowing and, and you need those kinds of means to meet a particular need, you know in your heart, even if the Lord didn't have any available in the immediate set of circumstances, you know him well enough to know that he could just say, let there be, and whatever was needed would become right there. Yeah. Folks, yeah. God needs, God needs us to be battle seasoned. He doesn't need a bunch of sissies. He doesn't need a bunch of, bunch of lightweights that, that well, I'll, I'll try the Lord here. I'll just do a little bit here. I'll tip God. I have, you know, that, that I'll, you know, I'm going to be friends with God if he's going to be friends with me. He needs folks to understand whom he's called unto himself, who've drawn to himself, that while we're living in this world, we're going to have trouble. I don't care what preacher says, here's a formula to pray, and it'll get trouble off your doorstep. Or here's, here's a verse you can claim, and you can rebuke all the demons of sickness, you can rebuke all the demons of poverty, and you'll never have any trouble with that. You, you just... Lightweight, 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 lightweight is all that is. Lightweight. Who God is in the process of training up is folks and calling to himself. Folks who when, when they, and they know what it is to understand lack. They know what it is to not have necessarily an abundance all of the time in material means, but their hope hasn't dried up. Their walk with God hasn't grown lame. They're just understanding that in this world, I'm going to have tribulation. Jesus said that, but you be of good cheer, Jesus said, because I've overcome the world. As long as I'm walking with you, as long as your life is, 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 is reaching out to me and you're embracing me, then come what may, I am sufficient for you in that, and I will prove it to you. You, so so it's, it's good when we go through things because it proves to us that those things do not have the power to destroy the plan of God and the peace of God in our hearts. We can go through stuff. We come out the other side knowing, you know, this Jesus, this Jesus I came to know. He's not just a Sunday go to meeting Sunday morning kind of a person. He was with me at 10 o'clock midnight on Tuesday night. He walked with me through what I faced on Thursday morning. He's not even a stranger to ungodly people, unchurchy kind of people. He's not a stranger. He's not afraid to irreligious people. Because my world, my life, you may say, often is surrounded and involved with folks just like that. But in the middle of that pagan environment, I heard him singing in my heart, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't judge them because I know how they walk. I know where they've been. I know what that feels like. But he saved a wretch like me. <laughs> and he's with me. And he's loving me. There is always hope, no matter what, because of the mercy of God for you and because of the might of the God, might of God, ready to be dispensed in your behalf. Today we come to the third one. And this is not intended to be an exhaustive treatment of the subject. But I just feel like it's, these are some categories within this, this matter of hope that, that we need to hear. There is also, there is also always hope, no matter what, because of the loyalty of God. Because of the loyalty of God. Because of the loyalty. Of God. Let me say that one more time. Because of the loyalty of God. We hear the word faithfulness attached to God. Because of the faithfulness of God. 
I think sometimes we lose the significance of the meaning of that word for whatever reason. Maybe it's not a word that we're real familiar with. Maybe it's kind of hard to define what faith is and what faithfulness may mean. I want to alter, offer an alternative, an alternative word for the word faithfulness. If everywhere you read in your Bible or it came up in your mind something that would have to do with the faithfulness of God, insert this word in its place, the loyalty of God, the loyalty of God, loyal as your God, loyal to you. The, the challenge can be in our culture, Disloyalty seems to be one of the major markers of this time in the life in the span of humanity. A disloyal wife, a disloyal husband. And, and, and the ultimate expression of that is, is, is a divorce that happens. In the one human union, when you would think this is, this is to be safe. This one is going to be forever. I love, he loves, she loves, we love. We're, we're committing our lives to each other. Loyal, loyal, loyal. And then whatever the circumstances or the reasons were behind it, it turns out that it has been the opposite of loyal. And the opposite of loyal in one sense is to be rejected. It, it may not be in a marriage. It, it may be in a family situation. You, you, you raise children in the anticipation that, that, that they'll, they'll love you as mom or dad. You'll be able to love them, be able to go on happily through life loving each other, and something happens over time that in some of the closest human relationships, blood kin relationships, instead of loyal, it's rejected. And there's no way to quantify how deeply that cuts into the soul of a man or woman. Rejection is an awful sword. It may have been in a professional sense. You, you, you made your commitment in good faith to a particular business or a particular partnership or to a particular individual. You were, you were willing to stake your professional reputation with this particular organization, and it seemed to have worked. It seemed to be made in heaven. It seemed to be great for a while, and then change comes. And then instead of loyal, reciprocated, there's rejection. Now, folks, hear this. Brothers and sisters, hear this. If there is one human emotion that the Lord Jesus Christ understands, it is the human emotion of rejection. Did you hear what I just said? He's capable of understanding all of our, he, was, he became in the form of a man, he's tempted at all points like as a man, yet without sin. But folks, the one dominant grief to his heart the thing that broke his heart was to be rejected. John chapter 1, nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from him, Jesus. The creator God taking the form of a man. And then John says, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It, it was the common people who heard him gladly, the scripture would say. The ones who, who, who knew sickness and knew lack, knew, knew needs of various kinds, ordinary common people, but the ones, the ones who knew the most Bible, 
the ones who knew the most songs, the ones who were the most steeped in traditions that Moses had handed down all those years, and then they even added some of their own. Those were the ones who rejected him. Who are you? What authority do you have to talk to us in that way? What do you mean by saying that you're, you and the Father are the same? And then on the cross, as he was bearing in his body on that tree, as the Scripture would say, your sins and my sins, there was a moment in time when the Father himself turned away from the Son, and the Son bearing, the Lamb of God bearing the sins of the world, and the Father turned away, and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why what? Have you forsaken me? Brothers, sisters, know this, the Lord Jesus Christ has walked the valley of rejection, has walked those same roads has been stricken by that same kind of grief. And if there's anybody who can understand what that feels like, he understands. If there's anybody who could say to you, those who have rejected you, those who are rejecting you, they do not speak the heart of your Father for you. Rejection will try to grow lips. Rejection will try to talk to you. Rejection will try to be a lawyer and reason its case into your inner part, the inner part of your life, and cause you to come to the place of believing, well, if this one doesn't love me anymore, if this one has walked out of my life, if that one has this conclusion about me, then that must be the way God feels about me. When the opposite, do you hear this, please? The opposite is the truth. The opposite is the truth. The opposite is the truth. And Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are being so tempted, so tested, the Scriptures say. Jesus is able to come alongside, and when you cry out, Jesus, Son of David, as Bartimaeus did, to have mercy on me, the Lord is able to mercy you right in the place of your rejection, right in the place of that abandonment, right in the place of feeling like you couldn't be worth anything because those of value have rejected you. Humanly speaking, there's no way out. Even if time passes and some parts of the wound are not quite as fresh and they've kind of scabbed over, but the real healing part of that, to know and you know her, you are of immeasurable worth, that the lie of the enemy was just that spoken to you, that you're not worth hanging on to, you're not worth investing in, you're not worth cherishing, you're not worth nourishing because this one and that one or that setting walked out of your life. It takes the spirit of the living Jesus Christ to come and speak to your spirit and say, here is the truth. I chose you before the foundation of the world. I adopted you in my heart, in my plan, not because you were the booby prize, not because you were just what was left, but because I wanted you. I chose you as my child because I wanted you. Let me give you a verse. And this is out of Hebrews chapter 13, and it's the end of verse 5. It's one we often quote, but I want you to know where it is in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, this part, the Lord speaks. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The King James may translate it, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Now, brothers and sisters, all of this business about the mercy of God and the might of God comes together at this specific point. 
It is a specific point of God's loyalty to you where he says to you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now for him to say that, being God as he is, that means that he has to be taking into account every one of the circumstances and events that could happen to us in our lifetime. He knows everything about you and me before we've ever lived a day. And he makes this statement as if to say, there is, there is nothing that can ever happen to you. There is nothing that you can ever do that would cause me to wad you up like an empty McDonald's breakfast bag and throw it on the side of the road to leave you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Forsake meaning to abandon. Abandon at the time, in the time of need. Abandon in the time with their reciprocal expectations. Like fathers abandon families. Like wives walk out on husbands or families. I won't do that to you. I won't start a new life and leave you to handle yourself. We could put it in there, I'll never divorce you. I'll never alter the contract and cut you out of the contract. I'll never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Loyalty. Loyalty loyalty. There is always hope, no matter what, because of the loyalty of God. Now, Jesus will say, and it's given to us in the, the instructions that he left when we would have the Lord's Supper, and every time the cup is taken, it is filled with juice or wine as a symbol of the body and the blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He put it this way, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant in my, my blood. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had to do with the people when sins would be committed and things they needed to be made right with God. They would take an animal, and the animal would become the sacrifice, and the blood of the animal would be used as an atonement, a covering for their sin. Jesus is saying there's a new kind of covenant. There's a new kind of contract. There's a new kind of relationship. There's a new kind of marriage that is going to happen because of my blood, because of what my blood, my death will accomplish between you and the Father, different than the relationship that the Israelites had with the Father under the old covenant. Find your way to Hebrews Chapter 8, with just a second. Now, I'm going to go, this is going to make sense if you'll stay with me. Hebrews chapter 8. Understand that the Bible is divided for our purposes into two parts the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New what? The New Testament or the New Covenant. The New Covenant. This, what we're about to read, is what is at the heart of this new covenant. And it ties directly into how certain we can be of the loyalty of God to us who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And His Spirit has come to live inside us. Acts, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect, I will bring into existence, bring into working a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
and with the house of Judah. This is out of Jeremiah chapter 31, prophesying what would come and what would, have, would happen in the days of the Messiah, the days of Jesus. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord, on the basis of their rejection of me, the Lord is saying, I withheld. I had to withhold blessings that I wanted for them. For this is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them, write what? Write my laws upon their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. You ought to know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Here's, here's what's at the heart of this new covenant. It is that God would put his spirit into our spirits, into our hearts. And across our hearts, there would be the writing, in, to use this image, the writing of the laws of God. The things that please God, instead of being in a book outside of us, now the things that please God would be written across the tablets of our hearts. We would know from the inside, from the inside out, what pleases him. It would not work anymore, any longer in this new covenant that there would be a long-standing forsaking, turning away from the one in whom we're in a covenant marriage relationship. We are called the bride of Christ. Because the Lord, by his spirit, has done a work in us that wasn't done in the Israelites in the old covenant. They didn't have the help of the spirit of Jesus alive inside them, putting love in their hearts for the Father, putting a desire to please the Father inside their hearts, a longing to know him better. They, they didn't have that. They could read the Bible. And it would tell them what you don't do and what you ought to do and what to do when you do wrong and so forth. But it was external to them. For Paul to say, here's the thing, you Gentiles, those of us not naturally Jewish born and even true of the Jewish race outside of Christ. It is Christ in you that is your hope of glory. Now, where are we going with that? What's that all about? Where did we get, where will we get the desire to please the Lord. Where will we get, as someone who's received Christ as Savior, Lord, where do we get that, that drawing to Him? The drawing to Him and the loyalty to Him comes from Him. It flows out of His heart into our hearts. How could that be? The only way it can be is because that's His heart for me. He puts his heart in me to be drawn to the other part of this marriage relationship in Christ, the bride of Christ, but it comes from that which already exists in his heart for me. I'm being loved. John will say, we love because he first loved us. He puts his love inside me, and my response to that is to love him back. And Jesus is saying, this is so huge. It's unlike anything that's ever happened. It's more than a list of rules. It's the joy of a relationship. And not a relationship that has the threat of abandonment or divorce or rejection. But it's forever. It's forever in place. I love you with an unchanging love. Let me show you another place, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Have you ever tried to find the book of Romans in your Bible and you can't find it? Sometimes it seems like pages move around inside my Bible trying to find it. I think I got it. 
Romans 8. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, Stop saying to yourself, well, what would Jesus do as if I've got to figure out something outside of me to copy Jesus? It isn't about copying some standard. It is about receiving the life of Christ on the inside. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord Jesus at work inside your heart is the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. The invisible presence of Jesus is the Spirit of Jesus, is the Holy Spirit. And he works in us. And his spirit to our spirits will be saying, you're not a slave. You're not a stepchild. You're not rejected. You're not a cast off. You're a child. You're an heir. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. No matter what the watching, mouthy world has to say about you. Find Romans chapter 8 and follow along with me as we look down through, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The mercy of God, the might of God, coming to bear in his expression of his loyalty to you makes this statement that God doesn't cause all things. He's not responsible for evil. He's not responsible for the pain and the bad and the suffering and the hurt. But here's what it says about your God, that he is so big, his reach is so broad, his wisdom is is so deep, his authority is so final that he has the ability to cause everything in your life to work together for good. For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, lest we think that that word for all things is is sort of limited in its scope. Let, let me give you from a straight from, the, from a Greek dictionary the meaning for that word. All things, each thing, everything, anything, every kind of thing. God has the ability to take whatever it is Whoever did it, however long it happened, whenever it happened, he has the ability to take it and turn it into good in your life. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's something, when you're sitting real close to something like that, when, when, the, when, when it's just it's near you, it's close to you, that something really painful and difficult, something of rejection has happened to you. The human side of us, and we have to be patient with the humanity inside us, we have a hard time even embracing that, thinking it can't be true. I could never see good coming out of this. I could never see how even God could do something that would be profitable for me in the long run because of this circumstance. But there are others moved a little farther from the point of impact. And you're able to look back and you're able to see in ways you couldn't see when the round hit so close to your boat. But you can look and you can see now that there has been a work of good in your life. 
that God has caused it to result in good. Folks, here's another thing. God, God will be loyal to you. He'll be loyal to his purpose for you. Loyal to you as a person, but loyal to you as it regards to his purpose for you. I would suggest two purposes. There are many, could be many, but these two. One is freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom at work. Now it can be freedom from, freedom from a bad situation. It can be freedom in the middle of a situation that may be challenging and tough. But freedom, you're free. You're not bound by it. It's not working you over. It's not controlling you. You're good. Freedom from, freedom in, but catch this, freedom to. Freedom to something. That if that other circumstance, if that other system, maybe it wasn't wrong, maybe it wasn't all bad, or maybe it was, but since that no longer controls you, since that no longer binds you, since you no longer have to check over, check in the river mirror to see who's trying to pass you from the old system, it's not an issue. Your freedom to become something you could never become before. You're free to go places, to do things, to meet, to try, to challenge, to climb in ways you never did. His purpose for freedom. He's come to set the captives free. I'm telling you, look back on that. It's one way to investigate. Lord, where was the good that came out of that particular situation? Freedom. Where was there a measure of freedom? Here's the second. Here's another one, another purpose that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That, that's in the Romans 8 verses that, that, we, would, that we would read, that he, he verse 29, for he, for he knew, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. More of the likeness of Jesus, more of the humility of Jesus, more slack in your rope, more patience with people and settings and circumstances. Give God time. Give God time to do what God can do. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. That there's a gentleness. There's a compassion. There's a kindness that maybe wasn't there before. There's a hunger to know the Father. That the world may know that I love the Father, Jesus said. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. It's the word conformed, pressed into the mold, mashed into the mold, that the Lord has a way of using the circumstances on the one hand to set us free, but also and at the same time to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, whether or not that means you're going to have $700 million in total assets as a certain couple we read of recently has, has in their, their joint property. Or that, that's beside the point. Now this, this is going to bless just everybody in this room. You realize, you realize, we realize that when Jesus left this earth, he left it without a penny to his name. He left it with a house, without a house. He left it without a horse. He left it without a well. He left it without property. Same with Paul. Same with Peter, on and on and on. So there had to be something other than the earthly trappings of stuff that enable a person to be found pleasing in the sight of God. Don't believe that lie. That I'm only, I only know that God has loved me because I can see this and I have that and I have the authority to do this in this life. No. I'm loved because he has set his love on me. I'm loved because he chose me. I'm loved because his spirit is working inside me. And there is, there is somehow, some way, there's the formulation within me, more of a Christ-likeness in my life. Stuff that used to own me doesn't own me anymore. Verse 35, I'll just 
two or three of these verses and we'll let you go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will have the power to cut me off from the artesian flow of the love of Jesus Christ? Not any human, Paul would say. Not any circumstance, not any voice. No face, and as that face comes up that speaks the loudest to your rejection, 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 or the circumstance, rejection, 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 the word of the Lord says, none of those things, not people or things, have the power to cut you off from the flow of God's love for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, tribulation, that, that means pressure, stress, things that just seem to keep hounding us, trouble. Does trouble mean Christ doesn't love me? Does the advent of trouble or pressure or stress mean that somehow I have failed Jesus? Or that he has dropped me and now he's interested in somebody else. And the way you can tell the felt and measured love of God, love of Christ, is where there's no trouble. Paul is saying, in effect, where do you get that? Where do you get that? Where does that come from? That attitude does not come from the Scripture. It comes from a wish list of folks who may just really are trying to figure out, does God love me or not at all? And if I could ever get to a place where I have no trouble, then maybe I'll know that God loves me. Paul says, in the middle of your tribulation, the Lord wants you to know that not even that trouble has the power to cut you off from the love of God in my heart. No kind of trouble is so big that it has the power to shut me off from loving you. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, that means not even have the ability to clothe yourself. Live through a set of circumstances for it might have been by the grace of God that your clothes didn't wear out. As, as the Israelites and the wilderness wanderings and for 40 years, and Moses said, just look at this. Your shoes didn't wear out. Your foot didn't swell. Your clothes didn't wear out. That was the miracle of God. That was the mercy of God causing that to happen. That wasn't because he didn't love you. Oh, how we need to watch how we judge people. And how we give our advice to Christian brothers and sisters. When they're going through stuff. As if the automatic assumption is the assumption that the Pharisees would have when they looked at sickness and trouble. God's judging you. You're in sin. You need to repent. What in the world would have been said to the Apostle Paul? What would have been said to Jesus himself? Who didn't have two coins to rub together. All right, I, I'm, I need to reel that back in. I, it just is astonishing how unbiblical certain biblical teaching, so-called biblical teaching, can be. And how it, it informs and frames the thinking of the church in a false way. What are you going to say to Christians in Sudan? What are you going to say to Christians in China? What are you going to say in places where there is no measurable external expression of the love of God? All they have is the promise that the Spirit of the Lord has written His law across their hearts. And they are walking and living in a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's 1 Peter. You know what was about to happen when 1 Peter wrote that book? Christians were being wholesale imprisoned, made entertainment for the Roman population in the arenas as they would 
be burned to death or, or slaughtered by gladiators or consumed by starved wild animals, women, children, and men. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. God is about building into your life, brother or sister, a depth of who he is, that he's bigger than your circumstances. He's bigger than your trials. Just because folks oppose you, just because things have been taken from you, just because stuff hadn't worked out necessarily the way we might prefer, it doesn't mean that the love of Christ has been cut off from your life. Amen. Preach it, preacher. Hear it. Hear it, church. So we make our heroes the wealthy Christians. We make our heroes the ones who have never known what it is to really struggle or stay in a place of struggle. Why do we do that? Good question. I don't have the answer. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Not we will conquer. In the middle of what things? Distress, persecution, tribulation, nakedness, famine, or sword. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How in the thunder am I going to be able to conquer the depression, the fear, the doubt, the scaredness, the, the, all the confusion that could come when stuff is blowing up circumstantially in my life? How? How? What, what will be bigger than that? It's as if Paul is saying, it's knowing <laughs> that you are loved by your Father in the middle of it. And not one ounce of any of those things that are negatives against you is proof of anything other than that he is with you in the middle of the storm. That he's standing with you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by your trouble. He's not only hanging out with the rich and famous. He loves his own. And if it's your season to walk through a time like that, then you'll know the sense of his presence like at no other time in your life. He will make his presence known. And the love of God, Romans 5, 5, is being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been sent to us. I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just wound up about this truth. Instead of us waiting, listen, folks, listen. Now, wait a minute before you get to clapping. Instead of us waiting, God, it's just going to be so much better when this pressure is removed. It's just going to be so much easier for me to praise you when this situation isn't in place. When my ship comes in, Lord, you have no idea how I'm going to be dancing before you. But what if the Lord is saying, I am the same today as I will be in that day. I'm as good today. I'm loving you as much today. You're the apple of my eye as much today. I favor you as much today as it will be seen that I do one day. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Nothing has the power to cut off the flow of the love in my heart for you. Nothing. There's never going to be a divorce. No divorce lawyers in heaven. No divorce lawyers in the kingdom of God needing any kind of work because the bridegroom has already established his unshakable, irreversible, unmovable, eternal love for the bride. And the new covenant means that the bridegroom has established the love for the groom in the bride's heart. So that even though the bride, and I'm, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a gender-free statement, male and female, part of the bride of Christ, even though we may stray, even though we may mess up and do some things that we know are wrong, we can't stay there. We can't live there because we've got the law of God 
written across our heart. And we're drawn to please him again. It's the difference between a hog and a horse. Difference, in a sense, between a hog and a horse. A hog loves slop. A hog loves mud. A hog loves to just be completely covered up with that old stuff with just a snout sticking up so it can breathe. Could live in the slop. Hog waller. Love to smell like slop. Love to hang out with other things that also are sloppy. Delights in slop. Drawn towards slop. Do you hear me? But a horse... A horse may come by a slippery slope, slip off in the slop. But he's going to get out of that slop. You, you may see horse after horse has been ridden. The horse is kind of trying to get some dust and dry out a little bit from the saddle blanket and stuff. You may see a horse wallowing around in the dry dust in the corral. That horse is going to get up. That horse is not going to live in a slop. A hog will live in the slop because it loves a slop. A horse just seems to like things a little cleaner. A little cleaner. When the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, turned you and me into a new creation, he changed us. The old things passed away, new things have come into being. The hog part of us that saw nothing wrong with slop, loved the smell of slop, drawn to people of slop, something about that shifted. And if it didn't shift, how do you know that you've ever been born again? Don't say because I've been baptized. Don't say because I come to Alamo City. The change from the inside out that my heart, and I can't explain it, but my heart is now drawn toward the Lord instead of me trying to run from the Lord. I want light more than just living in the darkness. That's one of the ways we know that the spirit of this new covenant is at work inside of us. We may stray, we may drift, but we come home. We come home because home is where truly your heart is. And there may be folks sitting there listening today, I, you know, I've, I've tried religion, but I still keep being pulled and I still keep staying over here and I'll drift back by the church once in a while. Folks, it might just be, you've never really come to know Jesus. You know about him. But he has never really entered your heart because once he does, he doesn't, he doesn't put a straitjacket on you. He doesn't shackle you to a pulpit. You start getting shifted from the inside out. He changes your want to. Now, just think about it. Those of you who have been through a divorce, have been through abandonment, rejection, various times, if you could have changed the want to, Inside of the one who ended up rejecting you or the ones who, if you could have changed their want to, might that have made a massive world of difference? God has the power to change a want to. He has the ability, he has the power, he has the heart. To anyone who would cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, save me, I come to you, I want you to live in me. He has the power to change the want to so that both sides of the marriage want the marriage. Both sides want the marriage. New covenant, the new way of doing it, God's way of doing it. Not a bunch of rules, but a relationship that is driven by love for each other. Isn't that something? There is always hope, no matter what, 
because of the loyalty of God for you.